what happens when we break our bodies down? Why do we take our bodies to that place? What was happening in my mind? What was happening in my body? Was there some kind of disconnect there? Why was that disconnect there? And so there was just a lot of questions that were really interesting to me. And that kind of carried me through the whole writing process, even as I got further and further away from this part of my life. I recovered and I healed and this book was part of that, but it's there was still something really interesting to me about these questions, both like why do young female athletes do this in particular? Why do runners do this? But just even more broadly, like what is the human experience that's happening here? Why did I choose to treat myself and my body in this way? And then how was I dealing with the repercussions of that? Welcome back to the 8020 Endurance Podcast. I'm Hannah Hunstead, your co-host, and today we talk with Emily Pfeiffer, author of the book The Running Body. The Running Body delves deep into the world of long-distance running, obsession, beauty, and healing. Join us as we discuss pages from her book and unravel the complexities of running, the human body, and the stories that we tell ourselves. Enjoy! Emily Pfeiffer, welcome to 8020 Endurance, the podcast that is 80% on course, 20% hopelessly lost. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. I feel very similar. I think that's, for me, that's a good day. 80% on course and 20% lost. Yeah, we, we try to keep it mostly positive <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in the intro. It's an absolute delight to have you on the podcast. I am about... 83, 84% of the way through your book. I just got off a three-day road mm-hmm. trip and my wife doesn't like to do any of the driving. Mm-hmm. So I, I, if not, if we'd shared the wheel, I would have finished your book. Um, but I am really en- enjoying it. And as an mm-hmm. author myself, who's been on a lot of podcasts, like the host always says, I love your book. Um, and sometimes they mean it. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm, I'm genuinely loving your book. Um, it's it, it's a it's a painful read to to a great extent, and I'm not done yet. And so I just I wanted to give you an opportunity just to spoil the ending for me and <laughs> tell me tell me if there's a happy ending or not. You know that's an interesting question because to me I I don't know if I would say it's a happy ending, and I know for some people the way the book ends, you know, it doesn't get tied up in a nice bow. I don't run a race at the end and run my PR or anything like that. I would say that for me, the way I interpret it, the ending for myself is just that it ends almost in this moment of stillness and reflection, where it feels like there's a kind of acceptance of what I've been through as a runner. And that, you know, whether or not I'm a runner anymore at that point in the book is still kind of up in the air. But there's a kind of acceptance or a movement through that process. That's how I interpret it. But I know that for some people, you know, it's certainly not happy because I think I I was really interested in writing a book sort of in the process of still healing from a lot of the injuries, both mental and physical. So the book, you know, the ending tries to capture that, that there's there really wasn't this like clean end. But to me, there's still movement. Right on. For those readers who haven't picked up your book yet, can you give them a little insight to what sparked you 
wanting to write this book. From what Matt has told me, candidly, I have not read the book, but I did do my due diligence of stalking (laughs) you on the internet. So I think I'll have a good basis to go off of. It seems like this is almost sort of like a diary Uh for you or like your way of dealing with what you went through as a female athlete. And I can especially relate to that as well. So was it your diary that you just decided to publish or what sparked this whole so, project? So yeah, so when I, I ran through high school and then college, I went to Ohio University and in college, to me, I think of it or I sometimes it feels like almost a sort of classic move of a lot of, especially when I was in the NCAA running cross country and track at that time where I was overtraining and under eating. And then from there, I had a series of stress fractures as well as just a lot of emotional and mental damage from those decisions I made, ultimately having to leave college about a semester early, not finishing my eligibility, and just feeling really lost because I had lost running, which was the love of my life at the time and still is in some ways. And so I didn't want to write this book, I guess is one way to answer your question. I really would have liked to kind of put this part of my life behind me. But after college, I spent some time in New York, um, and then I went to um, a creative writing graduate program because I knew I wanted to be a writer, and I didn't really know what I wanted to write about yet. I had an essay due, I think it was like a week away or something. I was sitting on a plane coming back from the Olympic marathon trials when they were in LA, and I was like, I have an essay due in a week. I have all these feelings about running, you know, because I was still sort of recovering from all of my injuries. I wasn't really a quote-unquote runner again at that time. And being at the trials had brought up a lot of stuff for me. And so I just opened my journal or my diary and just started writing. And that really is what kind of sparked the book. And like I said, I really didn't want to write about running. I wanted to write about other things. I was interested in a lot of other things, but I really knew that this was the story this was the biggest thing I was still working through in my own life. And I almost used the topic as a way to teach myself how to write a book. And then throughout that process, I also found a lot of interest in the story itself and these questions of like, what happens when we break our bodies down? Why do we take our bodies to that place? What was happening in my mind? What was happening in my body? Was there some kind of disconnect there? Why was that disconnect there? And so there was just a lot of questions that were really interesting to me. And that kind of carried me through the whole writing process, even as I got further and further away from this part of my life. I recovered and I healed and this book was part of that. But it's there was still something really interesting to me about these questions, both like why do we why do you know young female athletes do this in particular? Why do runners do this? But just even more broadly, like what is the human experience? that's happening here? Why did I choose to treat myself and my body in this way? And then how was I dealing with the repercussions of that? So yeah, I think there was just a lot of interesting questions for me. And it really did feel like a lot of this writing process, though I eventually moved to my laptop, it did feel like writing a diary, especially the very first drafts, because I was just, you know, I there's like that phrase of like, open your vein and bleed on the page. So it was just a lot of typing really quickly, trying to get everything out and then a longer editing process. But to me, it really does feel like a diary or an encapsulation of that time period. Mm-hmm. I'd like to ask you a question about the title, mm-hmm. your choice for the title mm-hmm. of the book. Anyone who gets past the front cover understands that that's not just a title, uh, that it's sort of like that concept mm-hmm. of the running body is, is integral to the story you tell. 
it, it is it is a literal objectification of, of yes. your own body, like a really interesting choice you make. And then, you you know, when you read it, you see that you, you are consistently, continually, you know, sort of writing about your body as this thing. Just tell us about that, that decision. Yeah, that the title didn't come along for a, a while. It wasn't something I immediately knew. And and it took me almost it took me realizing what you just described that I that part of this process was the objectification and the distancing of my own body and then you know turning it into or attempting to turn it into this ideal quote unquote running body. And so it took me a long time in the writing process to come to that understanding. And then when I did, there was just something about that idea and the image of the running body. And I kind of talk about some of the books, like Running with the Buffalo, Once a Runner, some of these books. And then, of course, at the time, I was also reading a lot of Runner's World and then, you know, going to races and meets. And I think for me, even though I had maybe never said that phrase out loud, the running body, it had so much energy in this really strong image. It kind of captured almost like the image I got wrapped up in inside and, and what I did to my body. There's something about that phrase that captures it for me. And talking more about what you did to your body, it seems like you focused a lot on just that instead of the actual running and, and other factors that can make you a better runner, a better athlete. If you could go back, what else would you have liked to focus on, especially in those college years, instead of your body image and trying to look a certain way to run faster? That's a good question. If I could go back, I think my biggest sort of message to myself or anyone, I think in that position, you know, I wish I could like shake my shoulders and convince myself that this is a really long game and it doesn't have to be a short-term game. I just really didn't have a long-term vision for myself. And, you know, maybe I did in some ways, I just didn't understand that the amount of overtraining I was doing and how little I was eating was going to cut my time as a competitive runner, at least in that phase of my life short. And so I just wish I was able to have a longer term vision. But I think the trouble is a lot of 18 year olds don't really have that. And no one else around me in terms of coaches really have that either. And so it's almost hard for me to imagine a world in which that would have been the case that I had this long-term vision that I was working from um, as a runner. But I, I don't know. There's probably a lot of things I would do differently. I think just, I don't know, almost having blinders on in terms of not paying attention to the body types around me, the, the sizes and shapes around me and correlating those with faster times, just trying to, you know, find confidence and love in myself and belief that I, you know, was meant to be in this body and this is the body I'm going to run as, you know, fast as I can. And um, so, yeah, there's like a lot of lessons that I have definitely learned now and operate from now. It's just so far from where I was then, which was just in this mindset of I need to be as fast as possible this season. And the way I think I can do that is being as lean as possible, whether or not that has any repercussions for me mm -hmm. down the line. So that was just the mindset I was in. And it's really hard for me to imagine anything that could have happened yeah. that could have helped me, you know, not have that mindset. Yeah. Do you think it's even possible for that not to have happened in your life? Like, I went yeah. through similar thoughts as a college athlete, especially yeah. swimming, you know, you're like, basically yeah. naked, <laughs> similar mm -hmm. to cross country. And 
I don't know. It just seems like this is the norm. (laughs) My friends Mm -hmm. went through it in some degree. You know, it's just like to what degree does a female athlete go through this? It almost just seems like you have to. So do you think it's even possible for this to not even have been part of your story or other female athletes' stories? Yeah. And yeah, I imagine that swimming – yeah, I'm just thinking I imagine I would be the same way in that sport too. Um, For me, I think like, yeah, for me, it was definitely impossible to avoid. I do feel like it was just also about, you know, it's being in a particular time and place. And I've heard a lot of people talk about that. It's, you know, a little bit different now, a little bit better in NCAA. There's more support for mental health, for eating disorders. Coaches are more aware. Like I've heard, you know, people have told me these things or share their experiences of that. And I think that's amazing. So maybe, you know, if we were both in the NCAA now, maybe we would have different experiences. But I think Mm -hmm. for me at that time, I think I write about in the book, you know, looking across the starting line at these big races and, you know, the, the dominant body type that I saw to me, you know, for me to have that body type, I had, you know, I, I thought that I had to do what I did to my body. I don't know if I could have avoided it. And that's something I wrestle with a lot in the book and just in my own life in terms of like not placing blame on anyone and really trying to look at like the broader cultural systems that were going on at the time. What did I get caught? You know, what kind of systems was I caught inside? Was I operating inside Um, rather than looking at individuals? Because I don't think there's much that could have been done in my case. Mm -hmm. One of of the real strengths of of your book, from my perspective, Emily, the the extent to which the reader is able to live inside your head. Hannah asked a question about, was there anything going else else going on in your life in those years? And like the sense you get from reading it is definitively yeah. no. Like that's like this, this absolute, and of course you could have made a narrative decision to, you know, to provide a little more breathing room for the mm-hmm. reader, but you don't, it's like, it's relentless, mm-hmm. this, this fixation, this yeah. obsession. And for me, you know, as someone who, who doesn't share your experiences, it gives me a really good sense of what it must have been like, just almost being just trapped, like with this, you know, this, this kind of loop (laughs) going around and around in your mind. And, and one thing that, um, that, you know, I was thinking, because I'm not just reading your book, I was reading it, preparing to interview you about it. And and one thing I see is like, you're so, so stuck in this place in your mind. And, and the last thing you really need is other people outside you reinforcing that by asking about your body, commenting on your body. And then I thought, okay, that puts me in a weird spot as an interviewer. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, maybe this is absolutely the last thing uh, you need. But I I, want to ask, uh, uh, when Hannah and I sort of prepped for this call, I said, I want to ask this this question. Like, I mean, how is it for your own mental health? I mean, is it, it, you know, I hate the word triggering, but like, is it potentially triggering at all to like have these kinds of conversations where someone's like, hey, tell us about Mm. your body? Definitely not anymore. And I actually think writing this book and editing this book and just that took a lot of time. So I think there's a lot that has contributed to to this. But now I feel very comfortable talking about all of this stuff, both my relationship to my body, my relationship to running, what it was like then, what it's like now, all these different changes. But definitely during closer to when I was in college and after yeah, definitely really triggering and, or, you know, yeah, I think triggering can be a hard word too, but just 
it would just put me kind of back in that space or feel encouraging. And I have these, this conversation with people sometimes, just sometimes even friends thinking about like how normalized it is to comment and talk about each other's bodies and how even sometimes when you're giving a compliment, it can be, you know, really affirming of maybe some unhealthy practices someone has taken up. And that's, you know, how it was for me at the time of probably writing the book and also living through that experience. So it's, yeah, I'm a lot better now, but definitely in the book, I share some of those experiences of people commenting on my body. And it was definitely a a way to keep me going around in that loop that you described. I read you mentioned in another interview, and correct me if I took this the wrong way, but you said through the editing process, it kind of made you realize that your coaches, while they were commenting, like you were just talking about on your body, you were taking that as like, oh, I'm doing the right thing. This is encouraging. I should keep going. Like what I'm doing, people are noticing a positive change. And just looking back and maybe like advice to coaches now, but what's the approach on situations like that? And and how should coaches deal with not even just female athletes, but athletes in general on on body image conversations? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really tough. I mean, my college coaches were actually encouraging. You know, they didn't say anything negative or discouraging while my high a high school coach saw me and I was in college already at this time, but he actually was very worried and concerned and he told me that people had seen me running around town and they thought that I, I looked sick. And even though that also in a way affirmed what I was doing because it made me think, "Oh, I'm really getting lean or fit or whatever term, Mm -hmm. you know, was very popular at the time. And so that was affirming too, but in a different way. Whereas my college coaches who really affirmed both me and some of my other teammates, especially my teammate, Julie, who I write about, and we had some experiences that were similar in some ways and different in others, but they, they were just flat out encouraging. And so that was definitely not the way to go. Even though I think even those discouraging comments were still affirming to me, I think those encouraging comments. And I think something probably that, again, I hope this is happening more now at at all different levels of running, but I think just being aware of your athletes and asking more questions about how they're feeling, what they're doing, how things are going for them. I mean, it was very visible that me and several of my teammates had made some really dangerous decisions about our bodies and that we were clearly not eating enough. And I think just having more open conversations about that, that are, I don't know if the word neutral is is right, but you know, I think questions can offer the athlete a space to kind of open up if that feels safe for them. But just, yeah, trying not to assign any kind of value to the changes. Maybe that an athlete looks like they're kind of undergoing, but just trying to make sure trying to ask questions, see what's going on, and probably just more education too in body image, eating disorders, training. You know, I think at that time, at least on my team, there just wasn't a lot of that coming from the top down. And so we were able to kind of covertly Mm -hmm. make these decisions without anyone, you know, batting an eye. And so I, you know, I think that's kind of the first step is just being more aware of what's going on. Mm -hmm. As a coach myself, I would like to just volunteer sort of my approach and have you evaluate it. I mean, there's more than yeah. one, more than one element to it. But for from my perspective, I always lean toward like reasoning with people. Like 
no matter regardless of, of what it is and i find that's sometimes effective but mostly not like you can't like usually logic people yeah. out of something that's holding them back that isn't really logic based so what, what i tend to do now more is like i think that you know to the extent that there's a cure it's the same thing as the poison which is influence mm-hmm. and you you talk about this in your story like you are looking at the runners you want yeah. to be and thinking i want to be that runner and so i got to do what that runner runner does or what i assume that yeah. runner does and i think there're just so many examples out there of top top women runners who fortunately for them have never gone down yeah. this road and it's the reason they have long yeah. successful careers and also other women who maybe started to go down this road or were able to come yeah. back and the reason they're on top is not that they had an eating disorder but that they yes. got past it mm-hmm. and like if you if you're able to see those examples that has a power that maybe logic and citing scientific studies mm-hmm. doesn't mm-hmm. have totally yeah i think um i'm thinking of like molly seidel if i would have had her as an example when i was in college and she was in college when I was in college. So, you know, her she was living through the story that I was also living through and she hadn't gotten to this point where she is now. And, you know, she's so open about that she is still struggling and she it is still something that she's battling with and always trying to overcome, but she's so open about it. And so I think about her as a really positive, would have been a really positive influence, you know, not because she did everything right or healthy or whatever word we want to use but because like you're saying she did make those decisions that I made but she also overcame them and has continued to battle and has been really open and honest about what she's going through I think as much as she can for her own sort of emotional health so I love I really do like that idea of thinking about um, like the sort of long-term conversation I was thinking about like we're talking about, I think, having examples of that, of people who have taken a long-term approach or who are still running, they have a longevity, and what are the decisions that they made, whether right or wrong, and what can we learn from those decisions? I love that approach, and it's definitely something that I think would have benefited me, and I think probably benefits a lot of athletes just to have really good role models, not perfect. You know, we're all really complicated and have complicated journeys through running, but I just think the open and honest ways that some athletes have shared their stories, I think is really positively influential. Going off of that social media, like I feel like that's become increasingly more important for professional athletes, Mm -hmm. just with the business side of things. And I feel like even within the past year or so, it's it's been more like free-flowing conversation about these topics, especially amongst female athletes. And so what do you think I don't know, like, are are there suggestions from you on how to go about sharing these thoughts on social Mm -hmm. media? Like, or what importance do you think it holds for younger athletes and and people like us who have gone through it on some degree, you know, um, looking at how we define ourselves Mm -hmm. as athletes today? Yeah, I don't don't think I have an answer to your, like, first question about, like, maybe I do. I'll try to get there, but, like, suggestions, um, ways to kind of talk about the these things. But to answer your second question, I'm, and I've noticed it in the past year, um, when I was in college, when I was writing this book, like I felt like no one was talking about this stuff. You know, there might've been a little bit of conversation here and there. I referenced an article 
that was published in Runner's World about a, a collegiate runner. Um, and, you know, they were talking about her eating disorder journey and history and overcoming it. And then um, I also reference a flow track video of Kara Goucher and Adam Goucher in a cold tub. And Kara Goucher kind of talks a little bit about an eating disorder she developed or disordered eating that she developed while she was at um, Colorado and how she overcame that. And those were at the time, like the two main things that I, you know, looked to. And I just felt like this conversation wasn't really happening anywhere when we were in college. And then um, it kind of slowly started to trickle. But I totally agree that it's really becoming way more of a prevalent, open conversation. You know, people are talking about kind of all across the different degrees that you were referencing, Hannah, like, you know, some women have had really intense experiences of this. Some women have just sort of had, you know, less maybe intense or or experiences that had less of a sort of consequences on their running career, but they're still being really open about how they still, you know, got wrapped up in disordered eating or overtraining or the combination. And so I think, yeah, I think the, the conversation about it is, to me, it's really helpful because it's just about like the more we talk about these things that the less that people feel ashamed. And like, I, I write about this in the book too, that I, for years afterwards, I was not honest about what I did to my body. I still would have denied that I did anything intentional that, Oh, I just lost a lot of weight or I wasn't eating, you know, oops, I wasn't eating enough. But now I think part of my comfort in talking about those decisions I made not only comes from my own writing, but just seeing so many other people talk about it too. And I've even started to see a lot of um, male runners talk more about it as well. So I think that's awesome. Like I'm just like the more, more stories, more open and honest conversation about this stuff. It it can't hurt, even though like you kind of mentioned, these conversations can be tricky and triggering um, to me, sort of like the pros outweigh the cons. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's like, there's no right or wrong way to share (laughs) your experience. Totally. So Emily, you don't know this, or you might not, you might know this, probably not, That, but I find a way to mention the topic of long COVID in every episode of the 80-20 Endurance podcast. So, you know, some of the material in your book that I found most moving and just personally relatable related to grief over the loss of, loss of running and the nuance in, in, in the way you address that loss and that grief is, is really really something, you know, because it's, uh, that's how it is, isn't it? Like there's so many layers, there's so much complexity to it. Uh, But, you know, you know, so, you know, I I lost the ability to run at 49 after decades Mm -hmm. of just like all kinds of wonderful experiences. Like when it happened to me, my cup was full. So there was definitely, there has definitely been a grieving process, but like, it can't, I mean, Mm -hmm. you're still a, a young woman now, and, and that mm-hmm. that is just a tremendous loss. So where where are you in, in mm-hmm. that process? Where are you with your with your running? Well, Hannah was talking a bit about some of your experience too with long COVID before we started recording, and I didn't have that experience, but I, you know, immediately thought of that grief of not being able to run and just feeling like your body is sort of against you or something's being taken away out of your control. And I def I definitely think the book, you know, is trying to grapple with those same same things or speak to that. I I took a long time off of running. I think I was still trying to run here and there. And in the book, I kind of mention every now and then, you know, 
I'd go out for a run or I would go try to run. And that was kind of my my relationship to running for probably about five years, I would say. I got into other things. Like I got into going to the gym, which was also this really complicated thing that I write about. And it wasn't until it wasn't until actually sort of like the middle of the pandemic that I started running again and building my miles really slowly and gradually. And I don't even know what really sparked it. I think I just had this feeling of, I was actually finishing this book, finishing a big edit of this book and about to send it out to publishers. And I think I just thought, let me just see how my body feels. Because there was always both emotional pain with running and the loss of fitness, but there was also still some physical things going on. And so I just thought, you know, let me see how this goes. And I just kind of built my mileage up really slowly. And I've done a couple races, like a couple half marathons and like a trail race. And I've had a lot of fun with it. But I'm also like something that getting back into running and training hard and, you know, doing workouts again showed me was that I still have a complicated relationship to running. When I was training for the first half that I did, once I started, you know, building my miles again, I got really into it. Like it gave me such a sense of purpose in my life. I felt so happy, so excited. My race went really great. That made me feel really happy. And I felt this excitement about my sort of renewed, rejuvenated relationship to running. But on the other side of that, I also knew that I needed to be really careful. That time period gave me a lot of time to develop a much healthier relationship with my body and with food. And so that wasn't a concern anymore. I knew that I was eating enough and fueling myself well. But just that intensity and obsession that I so easily slipped back into with running was a little bit of a yellow flag for me and something that I just kind of noted and tried to make sure that I kind of kept myself in check. And I think just having a much fuller life now helps with that for me. I just have other things going on. I have a lot of people and loved ones in my life who have nothing to do with running. And I think that's been really grounding. And so my relationship to running now, I would describe it as you know, I guess healthy might be a word to use, but almost like with that asterisk that I like, I also have to be really careful with myself because I just really do love running and I would run all day if I could. So I just have to be careful because I just know that running for me is also a vehicle for this like obsession and almost like a sense of purpose and identity that can get kind of dangerous. I think even though, you know, running is still something that I love to do so much. And so it's such a beautiful like movement and sport. So I want to have a good relationship to it. I don't want to be like angry at running or anything like that. I want to have an appreciation for it, but I just want to try. I always have to be careful with myself. Other than writing this book, how did you form this healthy relationship with running? I think the main thing for me was time. And I think this answer would be really different for different people who, you know, had different degrees of this experience. I didn't seek any professional treatment or I was never offered or forced into any professional treatment, you know, either for eating disorders or for anything, you know, I guess like sport exercise obsession wise or anything like that. So I think in a way, maybe a blessing in disguise was just how injured I was that I just could not run. And it sort of forced me to find other things and take a lot of time off. And I think just in that time off, a lot of healing happened. And then I think writing the book was sort of the next layer of that, that it really gave me a chance to 
work through the emotions and the anger and the sadness, the grief that I was still going through and kind of making peace with it and really reckoning with like that loss. I think of running, of feeling like I didn't get to finish my college running experience and yeah, just kind of working through it. So it was a lot of like internal work, I would say. And then at the end of, closer to the end of when I was first drafting this book, I met my current partner and he is not a runner. He, you know, he does, he's very athletic and does things and exercises and all that, but he, you know, didn't know anything about college running, didn't know anything about professional running. And he had a very, or he has a very healthy relationship with food. And so when we got into a relationship and especially when we started living together, I think just being around someone who had such a healthy relationship to food and to their body, it was very healing for me. And I think I still benefit from that almost like on a daily basis, just being around someone who doesn't have this obsessive uh, relationship with really anything, but especially with exercise and movement. It's just very good for me to have that. And I think I really need people in my life like that because I can just be always kind of swinging to different intensities. So I think those are the three biggest things that have helped me. And then kind of what we were talking about, just talking more about it too. I no longer pretend as if I was like healthy in college or anything like that. And I think that's been really healing. Mm -hmm. Do you find, and you don't have to answer this, I suppose, (laughs) this is kind of a personal question, but (laughs) do you find that your personality type is kind of this like obsessive personality or is this something that you only experienced with running and being so in control? Because I know, you know, a lot of people that deal with disordered eating, like it's a control mechanism, right? Like other things are yeah. kind of spiraling and and then yeah. you, you can control what you can control. And once you start seeing the yeah. effects of it, you know, it's that encouragement. And so do you find your personality type is this way? You don't seem like it, <laughs> but do you find do you find this in other aspects of your life? Yeah. And I think I especially during the time period where I was most wrapped up in all this disorder, all these disordered practices, I, yeah, you probably would be like, oh yeah, you do seem like you would be like this in all areas of your life. So I think I've just kind of grown out of it a little bit, but I think I, I think I learned actually, or, and I almost feel like it's like an embodied knowledge that I have that because I did what I did to my body in college. And because it did have such negative, dangerous consequences for me, I almost feel like I have this, I don't know what the phrase would be. Like, it's almost like my mind body will not let me take things that far anymore. Even when it comes to my work and, you know, writing, or I'm a PhD student. So for my research, like I will not stay up just as an example until like 3am working. I definitely prioritize sleep or like, you know, eating meals, taking breaks, like those kinds of things. So I think that there's a, there's a lot of tendency within me towards this obsession, but it's almost like because of what I've learned from my negative experiences with, with running and taking that need for control and obsession way too far, I think it's helped me in other areas of my life to just kind of like chill out a little bit and just kind of know I can feel when I'm becoming obsessive about things or becoming too controlling about things. And I try to reel myself in. And then I think also having, you know, people around you who kind of 
reel you in a little bit or kind of hold up a mirror Mm -hmm. can be really helpful for me too. So, Mm -hmm. and one more follow up question, then (laughs) I promise Matt you can ask one. (laughs) This is Um, good. You're doing you're doing great, Hannah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But what part of because I. I'm I'm like a little bit impressed that this disordered eating and this control that you had over your body and this relationship with yourself, like that you figured it out on your own because it seems like a lot of people and like therapy is such a big yeah. topic of conversation yeah. now too. Like yeah. therapy is so encouraging yeah. in today's society, I think, that I, I'm honestly a little impressed that your answer was oh, just like time and working on myself. Yeah. How much do you think like – the age that we're at as college athletes and as females yeah. is part of what you went through or, you know, in varying degrees of what other female athletes go through as well at that time. Yeah, I think it's huge. And yeah, I'm almost sometimes hesitant too to even even talk about like my own things that I did to like heal or recover because I do – really think I did, I did have a unique experience. And partially it was just that I was so young and therapy and mental health help in general wasn't as big of a conversation then. Mm-hmm. So it just was never something that I even really thought about beyond one. I write about going to like the sports psychologist one time when I was in college. Um, but yeah, it never, it never really occurred to me. And, you know, because of the experience that I had, I I was okay not to go seek those like that professional help, I was still able to kind of come through it. Whereas I know some people have that experience where they definitely have to and I'm sure that if I was going through this now, I probably would have sought mental health help and different kinds of resources. I think I just would have been more aware of them. I think that age is just such a vulnerable Mm -hmm. age. And I think at that time, I don't know about you guys, but I felt like super old and cool and mature and like I had my whole life figured out and I knew what I was doing. And now I look back and I'm just like, oh my gosh, like she was so, I can't even believe 18 year olds like live alone at college in dorms. I'm like, there's ever, you know, we are so young to be out there in the world making decisions that actually do have repercussions, you know, for the rest of our lives as athletes, like how we treat our bodies. And I know a lot of sports like contact sports, football, hockey, there's things that happen to your body in college that have really long-term impacts. And so I'm, of course, not against athletics in college or young people playing sports or anything like that. But I just think it's, it's really getting older has really shown me how young 18 really is. And I also teach college students of that age. And so to me, I'm just like, wow, you're so vulnerable here because there's so many people who have authority over not just you, but your body. And that authority can be used, you know, in ways that actually don't benefit the person themselves. And I think about this a lot. I'm just teaching writing, but I have athletes come into my class and I, I do all in method. I really worry about them. And part of me has trouble not intervening when I see that their bodies might be getting taken advantage of on the football field or basketball field because their coaches have a stake in their bodies and getting a kind of performance out of their bodies that actually is kind of divorced from their own well-being. And so I know that now mental health counseling and care is a much bigger topic for these younger athletes, but I don't think that necessarily means that everyone who has authority over that athlete always has their long-term best interest. So I don't know, that's a very long answer just to say it does. I do think age has such a huge part of it and it does 
it just I guess I just worry about it because I'm like just so young and so vulnerable and so so little control in a way over what happens Mm -hmm. during that time and going through so many changes yeah yeah you kind of sign your your body away and just you know give it to your team and to your coaches and yeah so many changes a huge transition period yeah it's no wonder to me like it really makes sense to me that college students or you know people of that age really struggle I've got a two-part question for you then I'll I'll let uh, Hannah close us out but I'm curious to know if you could compare and contrast you know what writing means to you now to what what running has meant I think they pair well together but they're, they're they're not the same um and then part two, so I'm, I'm talking to you from Flagstaff, Arizona, where I'm, I'm launching this new operation called Dream Run Camp. It's like the ultimate, mm. ultimate runner's retreat. And something that I am I'm thinking about doing next year, it's, it's mostly like, an, like a residential open-ended type of thing, trying to recreate the, the pro training yeah. experience for everyday runners. So you can come and stay for up to 12 weeks. Yeah. But I would like to do some one-off um, shorter events and I'm, I'm cogitating on one I'm going to call running and writing. So it'd mm-hmm. be like a three, three to four day mm-hmm. thing where mm-hmm. people, cause there's so many runners who write. So I thought it'd yes. be fun to yeah. just have this like immersive long weekend, but people aren't going to come out mm-hmm. here just for my mentoring. So I'm going to put you on the spot and ask <laughs> if you would ever consider co-hosting a running and writing retreat here in Flagstaff with me. Yeah, that sounds like a dream. Let's definitely keep in yes. touch about it. And I think it's something a yeah, dream, it's something I think about a lot camp. too. <laughs> yeah. And I and even people who um like cuz most of the writing I do, I, I don't know about you Matt, but like I do a lot of just like writing that's never going to see the light of day. You Not know, me. I publish every journaling. single word. <laughs> <laughs> That's smart. I should do that. That's a much that's a much better business model. But yeah, I just think writing itself, almost like the act of writing, just like just the movement or act of running, there is so much to me that feels very symbiotic. Because I think about like I'm not very good at meditating in the traditional sense, but when I'm running, I notice that I can't keep like a line of thought in my head very well. So I might have thoughts pop up and I might try to work out something like a conversation with a friend or something I'm worried about. But often I'll find a mile down the road, I'm not thinking about that thing anymore. It's just kind of left, almost like in meditation. Sometimes I've you know been in guided meditations where they say like, put your thought on a leaf and like watch it go down the stream. And the only time I've, I'm able to do that is in running. But I think in a way, writing can have the same meditative feeling and I guess I guess people call it like the flow state but it's like of course you're thinking because you're writing but it just feels like you just get are able to get into this zone where things just kind of flow and I you know that can happen in running too so yeah to me there's just so many interesting interesting overlaps and almost just like that feeling of I think a lot of people who run and a lot of people who write it just makes them feel good like we do these things because it makes makes us feel good or it helps us work out work through something or you know we just enjoy it and so I think like both running and writing it's not they're not things you would do unless you enjoy them my relationship to them is connected in probably ways I don't even fully know but I love yeah I love the idea of a running and writing retreat and I think yeah sounds like there's a lot of cool like possibilities with even just organizing a day around writing and running 
sounds really fun. To me. All right. You heard it here, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Super deep closing question. I actually stole this one from Matt, but a similar one was on my list to ask you. Um, if you had a daughter, let's say sometime in the future around, you know, the impressionable age, 14, maybe college years, what would you do to try to not have this happen to her? I know we kind of talked about, is it impossible? I don't know. Like in, in my life period, like I almost think it's it's inevitable to some degree, yeah. but like how would you kind of coach her through this phase of her life? And let's say she's a really good runner too. So she's got that under <laughs> her way. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. That's a really tough question. I think, and I don't know how to do this, but I, I do think a focus on the process and the sort of long-term health and well-being and maybe a, not a de-emphasis on competition and performance because I love those things too. And I you know love racing and I'm still a huge fan of professional running, but somehow a kind of holding up of both like the process and the result kind of a little bit more evenly. And I think just, you know, not to sound like a broken record, but probably just having open conversations about it and how she's feeling and how she's doing and really being like really perceptive, maybe because I've been through it, I would be probably, I think people who have been through these things, like you have too, Hannah, like, I just feel like I I see it in people. Mm -hmm. And it's almost painful sometimes, you know, when it's someone you can't really necessarily say anything to, but I just think just being aware and I'm sure, you know, if I do ever coach or when I do have kids, like I think I'll just, I don't imagine, you know, being able to turn that part of my perception off. Yeah. So I think I'd be really attuned to that. And yeah, just trying to, you know, maybe just like disrupt it a little bit and, and see if we can like turn the train on some different tracks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's something I've thought about. I hope to have kids of yeah. my own one day and like think about this yeah. because I've gone through it, you know, some degree and I think part of it too is like keeping the fun in the sport. I see so many people, I think running is the same way. So many swimmers that just like hated it by the the end of their career. And, you know, they gave their childhood years of not playing baseball with their friends or softball with their Mm -hmm. friends and not on the soccer team and because they wanted to get to a certain level. And it's like unfortunate because you don't get that time back. Yeah. So, you know, it's also noticing if, if the fun is missing, like what's the point? Yeah. So that's important. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I love that because for me, I did have so much fun running in high school and then in college, I still enjoyed running, Mm -hmm. but there was like, it was a different, there was like an edge. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. It was a it was a more dark enjoyment. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us for today's conversation. I'm interested in your book now just from talking to you, and I hope our listeners will be as well. We'll definitely put all of your information in the show notes. Thank you guys so much. This was so fun. Thank you guys so much, and thanks so much for your interest um, in the book. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Emily. Her insights into the stories we tell ourselves and the entanglement of body and narrative have given us a lot to think about, and I hope that it gives you some things to ponder as well. You can find Emily's contact information as well as where to purchase and learn more about her book, The Running Body, linked in the show notes. And of course, if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform. Your feedback keeps us running strong, so thank you for that. 
And wrapping up with our closing segment, what is your jam? My jam for the week is Tourniquet by Zach Bryan, a chill, lovey song. I've been picking on a love song recent love songs recently, so um, bear with me there. But this one is a little more of like a Lumineers type vibe, so a pretty chill one. Um, and I hope you enjoy it. We'll talk to you guys next week. Goodbye. Bye.